0: Healthcare leadership is hard work, but what if you could learn from the most brilliant and influential minds in healthcare and beyond? What would you ask them? Would you ask about politics, policy, or maybe leadership? On the Gary Bisbee Show, I'll do just that. You'll hear from healthcare's most successful leaders and those experts who they listen to, as together we'll explore how the health economy is transforming. Why does a four-year-old who wanted to be a general practitioner become a internationally recognized infectious disease expert? Dr. Julie Gerberding holds a faculty position at UCSF, is well-published, led the CDC, is a senior executive at Merck, and sits on the board of a major health data-oriented company. We'll uncover what has led to Julie's success during our conversation. Julie responded to many crises while at the CDC, and she became known to the world for her daily briefings during the anthrax crisis of the early 2000s. What were the decision criteria she used as she made her career moves? And what leadership lessons has she learned along the way? Julie is a vaccine expert, given her infectious disease background and having been the president of Merck Vaccines. Her take on the speed of development of COVID vaccines, the distribution, administration, and the effects of vaccine hesitancy will be interesting topics that we will pursue. Julie received her undergraduate and medical degrees from Case Western Reserve University, an MPH from University of California, Berkeley, and did her residency at UCSF. Well, good afternoon, Julie, and welcome.
1: Thank you, Gary. It's good to see you again.
0: We're pleased to have you at the microphone. Why don't we kick off by your background, which is fascinating. What was it like growing up as Julie Gerberding?
1: <laughs> well, I grew up in a very small town in South Dakota. At the time, there were about 821 other people in the community, and it was wonderful because was a very safe and secure village, lots of freedom to use my imagination, had parents that encouraged all kinds of books and had a little chemistry lab in the basement, collected lots of bugs, and just kind of had endless freedom and the ability to pursue whatever creative activity I thought was fun and important at the time. But of course, when you grow up in a little village, you also learn how interdependent you are it was the kind of place where we didn't call FEMA if we had a blizzard or a snowstorm. We managed to take care of it ourselves. So a little bit of fierce independence mixed in with that community.
0: When did you decide to become a doctor?
1: At Christmas age four, someone gave me a doctor kit and that was it. From that point forward, I knew my dream and it was absolutely consistent throughout my entire childhood and all the way until I finally had my dream come true at Case Western Reserve. So it was part of my soul and it still is. My favorite job title, of course, is Chief Patient Officer at Merck. And it is something that it's part of my core purpose, but it's also something that I think it really matters to have people who can approach The healthcare industry from a patient's perspective, from a a clinical perspective, and really make sure that we never lose sight that at the end of the day, that is our purpose. Patients are our purpose.
0: In the early days of the dream, did you imagine that you'd be an internationally recognized infectious disease expert?
1: (laughs) Absolutely not. I imagined that I would be a practicing family doctor in a small community hospital, sort of emulating my own pediatrician, Dr. Tracy, who was a kind and gentle man. And if I behaved myself, I would usually get a little piece of chewing gum at the end of the visit and bestow all kinds of good care and kindness upon the people who were my patients. So that was the extent of my imagination at that point in time.
0: You've been so successful at whatever job you've been in, academia, CDC, government leadership, and Merck. So you've played the public-private side of this beautifully, but what drove you to be so successful through these various jobs that you've been in?
1: Again, purpose is very important to me. I had a grandmother who was a matriarch, of course, but she also had very simple perspectives on what your purpose on earth is. And I won't paraphrase her advice to me in its entirety, but basically, you're here to do good, you're here to respect people, you're here to bring whatever tools you have, whatever capabilities you have, and put them to good use. So it was a kind of a combination of a work ethic and a moral principle that really define a successful life, a life well lived as one that accomplishes as much as the gifts God gave you can contribute.
0: I'd like to go right to the CDC if I could and skip over medical school and residency and faculty appointment at UCSF. But what was the story behind your appointment at the CDC, Julie?
1: Initially, I was invited to lead a small division at CDC that was responsible for healthcare associated infections and antimicrobial resistance. So it wasn't a particularly big job, but it was a job that followed nicely on my role at the university in infectious disease, where I was the hospital epidemiologist and had responsibility for those issues in my home base at San Francisco General. So I had tenure at the time at the university. I had a lot of grant support and lots of fellows. And leaving the academic womb was a really hard choice. And I really was reluctant to cut that umbilical cord. So I asked with probably chutzpah if I could have a five-year leave of absence to go and serve my country. And I went to the dean and the chair with the top 10 reasons why I thought that was a good idea and they should support it. I can't imagine that I had the nerve to do something like that, looking back on it. But at the time, I guess I was a little too arrogant. At any rate, one of my reasons was that they had allowed Dr. Harold Varmus to do the same thing, to go and lead the NIH. And the dean carefully reminded me, well, Julie, Dr. Varmus is a Nobel Prize winner. You are not. <laughs> but at the end of the day they gave me the leave of absence and so that allowed me to make that transition. And once I was at CDC I loved it and one thing led to another in the post-911 situation, the post-anthrax attacks and I uh, myself as the director of CDC, to my surprise.
0: Well you became internationally known through your anthrax briefings that went on and on. What did that feel like? I mean you must have been, Communicating with people around the world about all of that.
1: Gary, I was working for my then boss, Jim Hughes, Dr. Jim Hughes, who was the director of the National Center for Infectious Diseases. And Jim and I were working 24 7. When 911 happened, it seemed like the world changed. The world did change for those of us in the United States. And then when the anthrax attacks occurred after that, we couldn't help but string those two phenomena together. So the prospectoscope at that time was very ominous. And every time we turned around, there was a new powder somewhere or a post office with a spore, or God forbid, another person with anthrax. So it was a nightmare. And it was much more complicated than most people realize. But of course, CDC also had some of the responsibility for understanding the contaminated buildings, managing the fears and concerns of the postal service, Trying to figure out how to decontaminate the Senate Heart building was no easy task for the broad team of people involved in that. And we had an important role to play there. So it was unprecedented, of course, but also frightening. And I think exhausting. And it really, as that evolved and sort of merged into my new role as the director of CDC, we went from that crisis to the West Nile situation as it marched further and further across the United States, causing great disruption and death in some cases. Then we had SARS, then we had avian influenza. So my whole tenure at CDC was really characterized by a series of public health crises that never really completely resolved, at least for me. So by the time I finished my role there, I think I had a pretty good case of PTSD because I had been on Constantly for my tenure, and never really realized what a toll that had taken on me personally. But also, of course, just the incredible sense of service and complexity and learning, and the privilege of working with some of the best scientists in the world at CDC. That to me is the greatest gift I've ever been given.
0: What advice did you give to Dr. Walensky, who seems like she's off on a crisis footing there, much like you were?
1: Well, I was a little humble about giving her advice because she's obviously an extremely competent and expert woman and has been doing a lot in the world of coronavirus in Boston with great success. I also really respect and appreciate her track record in the world of HIV, which is the other end of my career, the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. And I did suggest that listening was important and to not just listen inside of CDC, but to really get out to the front line at the local level and the state level where public health really happens. Because it's easy to stay ensconced in the Humphrey building with the department or in Atlanta at CDC headquarters. But if we really want to be the leader of the public health system, and we desperately needed that. It was really important to understand what the true needs at the community level are, because that's where things get fixed. And that's where you get the best feedback and the best reality check of what you're doing well and what you need to be doing better.
0: Julie, if you were to write a case study on the last several years of the CDC, most people aren't aware of the CDC unless there is a crisis, of course and we got off on the wrong footing with the testing situation. That's what most people probably think about in terms of the CDC at the current crisis. What lessons did you take away from what you saw happening there in the last year, year and a half?
1: I have to say that initially I was perplexed because the people who are responsible for the CDC response to this pandemic are the almost the same people that I worked closely with during my tenure and that Tom Frieden had worked closely with during his tenure. And we know the caliber of these scientists and we know what they're capable of. I had enormous confidence in their ability to be a strong pillar of response in the coronavirus pandemic, but that didn't happen. And if you know it's not the people, then you have to ask, well, what's changed? And I think the surround sound is obviously what changed in this situation, that the CDC was undermined, advice was overridden, and the politics really overlaid the good science that the agency was intending to promulgate. And that was very hard to see. So I think there are really three categories of issues. One is that there were some very specific performance issues. The testing is one of them, and I still don't have a full picture of what happened there, but clearly that's one that needs remediation now before the next problem occurs. I think there is a second issue which relates to the politics and the suppression of science or the ignoring of science, replacing it with politics in many cases. And then a third issue is probably the one that I personally am trying to contribute to the resolution of right now. And that relates to the chronic underinvestment in the CDC and the public health system. The agency is basically operating with the same real dollars as it was operating on 10 years ago or before. Number one, number two, there's no flexibility in the budget. And number three, The crisis funding that does come is reactive and is only one-time funding. You can't hire people or build long-term preparedness capability on bolus funding. You need sustained investment over long arcs of time. I co-chair the CSIS Commission on Global Health Security, and that is one of our very critical findings is this sort of crisis to complacency. We rev up when there's a crisis, and then when the acuity resolves, then the funding goes away and everybody lapses into a false sense of security, and that characterizes the CDC budget as much as anything else in our government.
0: What can we do as a country about that? I mean, you're obviously a former director, you get it, but what can we do? Because it's clear that the country's counting on the CDC as the trusted source in this sort of crisis. And yet without the proper funding, I did just a quick back of the envelope study a little bit along the lines you're talking about where I mapped out the growth in the population with the budget of the CDC. It was embarrassing.
1: Well, first of all, is to just build awareness and to engage um, people outside of the choir. So we've been having this conversation for many, many years, but we're mainly influencing the public health community and sometimes the global health community. And that does not really change the situation from an appropriations perspective. So crisis does result in attention. But as I said, the cycle of crisis lapses too quickly into complacency. And part of the structural reason for that is that this is all what is known as discretionary funding. So it gets counted in the congressional budget process as falling under budget caps. So if you give the CDC more money, you have to take money away somewhere else in the budget, as opposed to a situation that we use for our national defense and defense security, where the budget is exempt from those kinds of budget caps so that you can create a long arc of expectation and you can fund what is necessary to get the job done right without having to do all the horse trading that is implicit in the approach to the CDC. So I think at least for the biosecurity component of public health, we're going to need to look at a different structure of the budget. There are several good ideas out there. One is to create a system that looks something like the Federal Reserve where there's a board. And if you remember, the Federal Reserve was created, I think, in 1913, in part to avoid the politicalization of our central banking system, but also it creates a mechanism for relative independence about financial decisions. And I think something like that might be a model that we need to take a good look at.
0: Well, it feels like a critical need at this point. Well, on to vaccines, of course, with your infectious disease background and being the president of Merck vaccine, you are an expert in this space. How did the speed that came about with these companies developing vaccines, I think most people thought it would be a seven-year slog, and it seemed like it happened in about a year. How did that speed happen, Julie?
1: It exceeded expectations, even for those of us who are close in and can see the opportunities for doing things in parallel as opposed to series. But part of the reason that we could go as fast as we could is that the platforms and some of the technologies were in play before the coronavirus pandemic. So mRNA vaccine work had commenced mRNA work on MERS and other coronavirus infection was underway, etc. So there was the background work in a variety of small companies and large companies. So the groundwork was prepared. And that I think was one really big part of the story that probably doesn't get enough attention. But having said that, clearly we didn't have a vaccine for this virus because we didn't know about this virus. So Starting in January, when the sequences were first available, it was a race to develop candidate antigens. But I think the biggest time saving was to do so much of the work simultaneously, as opposed to what we would normally do as a step, process it, have conversations, many meetings, do the next part of the study, and so forth. And all of that processing takes a lot of time. So taking a look at it and really asking the question from a safety and good quality perspective, what can we do fast to identify if the vaccine is effective and demonstrate that it's safe? And at the same time, just accelerate all of the in-between steps that generally are time-consuming. And we got a great deal of help from regulatory agencies, particularly the FDA, to identify exactly what would be necessary to approve a vaccine. So that simplified the planning greatly. And then just the harmonization of that effort across different jurisdictions so that we didn't have to do things many different ways. We could stick to a single approach going forward. So many dimensions of that. And the most recently, the last really big piece is the collaboration across the various small and large companies in terms of progressing the manufacturing bulk vaccine, and then also uh, participating in the transition of that into vials and syringes.
0: Well, it seemed like this was a good case for public-private partnerships in a way. There was federal money, the agencies stepped in, the companies accelerated their effort. Are there lessons to be learned from that whole relationship between the public sector and the private sector that will influence development going forward?
1: I don't know exactly how this will unfold, but if I had to place a bet, I would suspect that we're going to be seeing... Transition of our government's investment into looking something much more like defense contracting, meaning that there will be agreements about what we need in our strategic countermeasure platform, along the lines of what BARDA does now, but taking that to a different scale and a different depth of countermeasures, so vaccines, antivirals, and immunologic therapies, and really filling out a much broader Sort of platform approach to that. But no manufacturer or R&D company can really take that on without having to de-risk. Because first of all, you might fail. And second, you may never need those products, hopefully. In which case, all of the hundreds of millions of dollars you would have to invest would bring no return whatsoever. So when you have a hard problem like that to solve, often the government provides the investment or shares in the investment so that the portfolio is de-risked and you can proceed knowing that you're not going to lose money trying to help contribute to the solution of a problem we have our toe in the water with this kind of approach but as i said the scale and the, the depth of what needs to happen I, I predict will be significantly enhanced as we benefited from learning this lesson and that's not just limited to innovations in the countermeasures. I think it would also apply to diagnostics and perhaps even innovations in environmental detection systems and ultimately data modernization systems that would allow us in the future to perhaps even predict where the hotspots for emergence will occur or predict where we need to focus our surveillance and early detection methodologies.
0: Well, going back to the antiviral, I know Merck has a couple of promising products in that space, I believe. Can you share a bit of that with us, Julie?
1: Sure. We have two antivirals that we're working on. Both involve partnerships with other companies. The products were initially developed by other companies, and one partnership and one acquisition has allowed us to work hard to try to accelerate our understanding of the value of these products. Monopiravir is the furthest along in our pipeline right now. This is an antiviral drug that has a unique mechanism of action. We're already manufacturing millions of doses of it. It's an oral treatment, which gives it some incredible advantages for community use, but also potentially international use. But I can't say what its efficacy is other than just very preliminary data from a couple hundred patients demonstrating that at least in one study, it had a significant impact on the amount of virus in infected people. So more data on that will be coming in the near future. But I think we, we need these antivirals because people will not all be protected from vaccine variants may emerge and make vaccines less efficacious, especially for vulnerable people. And having something that could potentially convert what could be a deadly infection into something that's mild or even warded off through prophylactic treatment is a good idea. I don't know if our drugs are going to fall into that category, but certainly we need to pursue good antivirals for coronaviruses. By now, we should know that there are a threat. We've had SARS, we had MERS, and now we've got SARS-CoV-2. Who knows what the next coronavirus infection will be, but we better think broadly about coronavirus antivirals.
0: That's for sure. As a layman, (laughs) I'll give you a thumbs up on that. The Merck J&J agreement is interesting. How did that come about?
1: But Merck had two vaccine candidates that we put through early studies, hoping that we would find target vaccine profile that was suitable for global use, meaning single dose didn't require a complicated cold chain. But our two virus candidates in the iteration or the formulation that we utilized for our early studies weren't really as efficacious as they needed to be helpful in the current thing. So we abandoned those vaccines. And that left us with some manufacturing capability that we had tried to preserve and protect in case they were successful and we needed to scale manufacturing very quickly. So at the end of the year, when we realized we weren't going to move those vaccines forward, we started looking around to see... Well, who could we help because we have enormous expertise in vaccine manufacturing, obviously, for many, many years. And it turned out that the J&J vaccine met the same sort of vaccine profile that we were interested in supporting one dose, less complex cold chain, et cetera. And they were in need of some additional manufacturing capabilities. So the two CEOs were able to have conversations. Our government last year and then with the new administration this year was very involved in trying to match up the need for more manufacturing capacity and capacity that various companies might have. And this just seemed like for all parties, a really good match. And so quite quickly, it came together very recently into a formalized agreement. And we were also benefited by the administration's decision to invoke the Defense Production Act to help us come to the front of the line and procure some of the equipment and machinery that we needed to accelerate our ability to make this conversion of our manufacturing capacity. So the government really helped broker these conversations. And at the end of the day, these are two large pharmaceutical companies that have enjoyed a long tradition of very ethical approaches to contributing to public health issues. So it's kind of perfect in a way. It's really perfect to have J&J and Merck. When the announcement was made in the White House last week, I, I just felt so proud To be part of making this kind of a contribution because it really brings the best of our industry, our innovation, our commitment, our ability to collaborate, our ability to do things at scale and do them fast. So it was a really very, very special moment in the history of, I think, vaccines.
0: Well, from the outside, there were a lot of people cheering, that's for sure. What's the tenure of the agreement between Merck and J&J?
1: Without getting into the details of the agreement, basically, it's an agreement to manufacture doses. Initially, we will be simply converting already made vaccine into syringes and vials. That can be done fairly quickly, and that speeds up the availability of those doses. But over the rest of this year, we will be also manufacturing the bulk vaccine From scratch, so to speak. And so that really adds to the total volume of vaccine that will be ultimately available. And we have agreements on how many doses that will be. And of course, those agreements can be evolved and extended if the need is ongoing. Once you've made the investment in the manufacturing capacity, it's in everybody's best interest that you make the best use out of it that you can.
0: Julie, you recently published an article in the New England Journal of Medicine that was a classic, kind of a 50-year history of vaccines with a graphic that was just outstanding. What were your findings from that study?
1: What we really looked at was the appearance of vaccines for the last 50 years. And we chose 50 years because the National Academy of Medicine was celebrating its 50th anniversary, and that is the reason for the article's invitation, actually. So we just summarized by year, which vaccine innovations appeared and how that evolved over time, moving from sort of the very traditional approaches to vaccinology, kind of kill virus or the measles prototype, all the way to the highly recombinant reverse engineering sorts of vaccines that have emerged more recently and everything in between. When you step back and look at it, it is an amazing history of public health. And the number of lives saved, combining all of that innovation, I think, again, really reflects the best and the brightest of our whole biopharmaceutical engagement. And I include in that the academic part, the public health part, the biotechnology part, the big pharma part, and certainly the support that governments have given in terms of getting that technology transferred into the arms of the people who need protection.
0: Is the, what we call vaccine hesitancy, today? Is that something new that's more recent, or has that been with us throughout the 50-year history of vaccines?
1: I think that when Jenner utilized the first vaccine for smallpox, there was an enormous hue and cry in the community about the safety and cartoons suggesting that people would turn into cows if they received (laughs) the cowpox vaccine, etc. So this has been part of the history of vaccinology for a long period of time. And some of it is just difficult to understand the theory and principles of vaccines. Some of it is today that many of the diseases that we utilize vaccines for don't exist or are rare. And so people don't really remember how terrible polio was or how many people on a global basis die of measles. If you don't see the disease, then any real or imagined threat from the vaccine looms large. Most of the people who are in the category of vaccine hesitant are people like us, their parents who care deeply about their kids and they're hearing all kinds of things and they're just worried and they need a little bit of information and a little bit of factual recommendation from their pediatrician or their family clinician to kind of put things into perspective. And ultimately, most children get vaccinated. Some people just really reject the whole concept of vaccines and really do feel that they're harmful and probably will not be persuaded otherwise, no matter how compelling the information or the science is. And then there's another group, unfortunately, that are people who have a profit motive from the standpoint of liability, litigation, et cetera, and sometimes prey on parents and others in that category. Now, fast forward to COVID, we have a very, I think, unique situation in this domain where we almost have divided our vaccine acceptors from our vaccine-hesitant people based on political party, which is absolutely ridiculous this virus does not know if you're red or blue or (laughs) purple, (laughs) you know, it's an equal opportunity infector. And to think that there is any reason why we should politicize decisions about a health matter just really shocks me as a doctor who really understands and believes in the importance of immunologic solutions. So I'm befuddled by this.
0: Well, it's a twofer situation. It's good for you. It's good for the community. So reason enough to get one. Let's hope that more people decide that it's the right thing to do. Moving on to public health for a second, what we learned during this pandemic is that our public health infrastructure isn't what we would want it to be. Those of us relatively close to it know that public health has been underfunded for years. What do you think, Is the outcome of this, do you think that we will allocate more resources to public health infrastructure, Julie?
1: I think that's happened already with the pandemic investment that Congress just made, where there's a substantial investment to shore up the front line of public health, vaccine confidence, and some of the, again, crisis interventions that we need. But I don't know that we're prepared yet to really take a look at what is necessary to modernize our public health system. And again, I always start with the front line and work backwards. So to me, there will be many important conversations to have, and probably the middle of a pandemic isn't the best time to reform the public health system but we can certainly learn and observe and do careful assessment of what we were good at and what we failed at in the current context. There's a couple of principles. One is that, again, it's got to be people focused with deep respect for communities and the complexity of our social strata so that the public health system needs to reach particularly the people who have the biggest risk of health disparities and social determinants of health not supporting their health and well-being. I think the second principle is that we need a national strategy that is long-term and not based on the fiscal year or the whims of a particular administration or CDC director. We need something that has broad and strategic relevance, multi-sector engagement in that kind of horizontal planning process. And then we need to really sit down and decide what does success look like? We can't be everything and do everything. So what are the critical things that our public health system needs to assure and then make sure that our investments are going there and that we're measuring the results that we achieve? It seems sort of strategic planning 101, but it's incredibly hard to do. And because it is public, it's political. And that makes it very difficult to pull through. I guess overlaying all of that is we need really strong leadership and collaboration. And candidly, I think we need the private sector. If the private sector hasn't figured out in this context how important public health is to their business security and success, it never will. But we've seen devastation across numerous sectors. And employers everywhere have been profoundly impacted by this. So I think it's time for us to recognize that the interface between public health and economic success is intimately intertwined. And we need to be thinking much more broadly about what biosecurity really means. It means economic security as well as defense security.
0: On that point, the large health systems have been very active, of course, in testing and treating patients and the administration of the vaccines and in chatting with uh, several CEOs of the large health systems, one positive outcome of all this is they are a lot closer now to the public health agencies and they understand better what the public health agencies are doing and the agencies understand better what the large health systems are doing. So I think that will help us going forward. Julie, this has been a terrific interview as expected, by the way, but I'd like to just pursue a leadership topic here for a moment to wrap up. Ask you the question since you've, again, you've been in a public sector, you've been in a private sector, you are in a private sector, but you've seen leadership from a number of different vantage points. What common leadership trait works at every different level and every different sector that you've been in?
1: Well, first, I would say destination, meaning you really do need to know what result you're driving for and be absolutely crystal clear about that, transparent about that, and focused on that. Not let the good get in the way of the important must wins. So that's the first thing. Discipline is the second D really need to discipline yourself to maintain that focus over long arcs of time and not get distracted. And then I think to kind of go along with that, it's development. And to me, development means that you never get so confident in what you're doing that you forget that you have a lot to learn, no matter what position you're in. And that you really need to stay in that learning mode and be open to the candid criticism. Even if you think you don't deserve it, you probably do. And to use that as an opportunity to reach out and connect and take in what you can do to be a better leader, but also what does your team need to be better supported and better led. So that's not a simple set of challenges, but it's it's part of the framework that I try to keep in my mind. And, And as I always say, at the end of the day, leadership is a privilege. It is a responsibility, but it's also a huge privilege to work with just such incredible people. And that's been the joy of my professional life in all of the roles I've had. Just wonderful teams and incredible colleagues.
0: Well said. You've been very active in women's leadership, and we appreciate the sitting on the advisory council of her story and being a host of her story. What kind of advice do you give for young up and coming women's leaders?
1: It's hard to put it into a soundbite, but probably the most common thing I say to people is get as many tools in your toolbox as you can. And what I mean by that is, especially when people are starting their careers, they are thinking, well, in my world, should I do an infectious disease fellowship? Should I go to the CDC? Should I get my master's in public health? And my answer to that is yes, you should do those things because those experiences will put tools and experiences and knowledge and networks at your disposal. You might not know how you're going to use those tools, but you will discover over the lifetime of your career that you'll have a need to reach into your toolbox and pull that tool out sometimes when you least expect it. I think it's an important concept because in the world that we work in today, the people who are the most valuable in organizations are the people who are the most versatile. Of course, we always need great scientific depth and deep experience, so I'm not diminishing that. But it's also important that people recognize that you can move from one career path to another. For me, probably the best example of the tool in the toolbox that surprised me the most was spending time in the lab, because I did a training grant in clinical pharmacology and infectious disease. So I spent time working in a lab on staff, aureus. And I was really not cut out for that. But I'm so glad that I had that lab experience because I understand how science works in the lab, the language, the grant writing, the processes, the thinking, the camaraderie, and the incredible hard work and when I went to CDC, I could understand what our lab scientists were experiencing, or when I'm at Merck, I can appreciate what our discovery scientists are contributing and what their world is like so It turned out to be an incredibly valuable tool, even though I didn't win a Nobel prize for my my bench work.
0: Well, there's still time though, Julie. So, (laughs) (laughs) Julie, thank you so much. This has just been a really engaging interview and I'm so glad that you spent time with us today.
1: Well, thanks, Gary. I really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you always. And I look forward to seeing you soon.
0: New episodes will debut every Thursday Join me in conversations to gain advice and wisdom from CEOs, presidents, and healthcare experts. Healthcare leadership is hard work, but it becomes more manageable as we learn from the remarkable lives and careers of our guests. I'll see you there.